Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. I hope you're having a wonderful day today. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland. I'm your host, and we are on to another episode. Today, my guest is Courtney Collier. Courtney is working on becoming a licensed alcohol and drug abuse counselor and is going to share his own story today about his own recovery from drug and alcohol addiction and how for a long time he fought getting help and finally was able to see the hope on the other side and really commit himself to that process. And Courtney is also going to share about how medication, naltrexone specifically, was critical for him in overcoming his addiction and building the skills he needed to live the life that he has now. Don't forget, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us. That really does help. Wherever you get your podcast, a great review is awesome. And don't forget, you can also check us out on Instagram at Addicted Mind Podcast. All right, stay tuned for this episode. All right, everyone, welcome to the Addicted Mind Podcast. My guest today is Courtney Collier. And he's going to talk about his story of addiction. And he's also going to talk about how medication in in that story has helped him with his addictive process and get a strong recovery. So, Courtney, introduce yourself and tell us about you and let's jump in. Sure. So my name is Courtney Collier and currently I reside in Tennessee. The largest city is Jackson, Tennessee. I'm originally from St. Louis, Missouri, so I was born and raised there. So my experience growing up in St. Louis in an uh, unincorporated kind of urban area was just a part of, I think, like who I was and the culture that I grew up in. And, uh, you know, I grew up, you know, Mm -hmm. going to church and being very involved in school. And I was considered like a scholastic type of person. So, you know, um, I had all of the, the like brain knowledge and things like that. So uh, interesting uh, enough, when I got into my first introduction to, you know, alcohol and drinking was 
think my first sip of beer was from my uncle when I was, I don't know, underage, of course. <laughs> and then my first right, right. was at a high school party. And we were at a high school party at a hotel and I had like really never drank before then. And so they were playing a, a drinking game, chugging. So they were taking 40 ounces and pouring it down a funnel with a long tube and they explained the whole yeah. point was not to drop, you know, not to, to drink it all, not to let any spill. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I'm going to nail this game. I'm going to, I'm going to get it right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so everybody's cheering. While I'm, I'm, I'm going to fit in with the crowd. Yeah. I'm going to win. Yes. Yes. I'm, I'm, man, I'm, you know, cause before then I always kind of felt like this outcast, but now I fit in and, and I got that first 40 ounce and I, they were like, yeah. And I, I was like, man, I drank it all. And I was like, give me another one. And, uh, so they did. And then wow. of course I really couldn't elaborate on the rest of the night because, uh, that's considered a blackout basically. <laughs> right. So <laughs> you, you drank so much. You don't even remember. And the rest of it was sketchy, but like I specifically do remember that. And so as I look back on my life, I reflect and understand that that connection of like fitting in and feeling a part of and alcohol being a part of that became a part of the narrative that I accepted as true. And so my drinking progressed through high school. How did how did how did. Real quick, as as uh, before, we get to where it progressed. Mm-hmm. How did the alcohol help you fit in? Like, how did it kind of help you feel like I'm a part of? Or what did it take away from you? What did it give to you? Why was it so appealing after this this drink? Well, I think before that point, like I never had anybody like cheering me on. I never had. I didn't feel like I had people. Like on my side, like, oh, man, like he's one of us. I always felt like this kind of outcast. And for me in that moment, you know, I felt like I was a part of everybody else. And I felt like they felt like they were part of me in that moment. And so for me, that was important because part of why I felt so different and so separated was because of my struggle with identifying my sexuality and things like that. And so that in itself kept me feeling isolated and alone and, you know, things like that. So I didn't have a peer group that could understand that aspect of me. And so that spilled over into me just feeling alone in most parts of my life. And so can you talk a little bit about more about that? About your yes. sexuality and, and how yeah, that so, kept you isolated. Yeah. So growing up, you know, in, in the area that I grew up in, I didn't know or have anybody that I could go to talk to to understand that dynamic for me. You know, I always uh, when I do some shares, I always say, you know, you can go to talk with anybody about the birds and the bees. But who do you go to talk to about the bees and the bees? <laughs> right, right. Who do you go I, talk to about the bees and the bees? Yeah, yeah. So once yeah, again, you're by yourself. Yeah, nobody knows that story for you, and so you know, I had to just figure it out on my own. And then another thing for me personally that rang into part of my journey was that I, I recognize now when I, when I was younger, I had an experience with like molestation and it was just like a, a one-time incident with like this stranger, but that became my narrative of what I thought it meant to be gay was these uh, random, yeah. strange sexual connections. And that's all I knew. And I 
played that out throughout a lot of my life. Yeah. And so I had to rewrite that narrative for myself. And so as I was trying to figure these things out on my own, you had that aspect going in the background and then you had the aspect of feeling isolated and alone and that alcohol became that common denominator for me. Yeah. And I would imagine if you don't have good role models about the bees and the bees, right? Mm -hmm. You don't know. You're, you're, yeah. you're completely in the dark about that. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. And so what happened for me was through those two experiences later on in my like junior, senior year of high school, I started finding out I can go sneak into the gay clubs underage and drink, you know. And so that became right. my outlet. And, you know, through that, I was able to, you know, drink. I was able to start to feel a part of a culture. And, you know, then the bonus was, you know, you can, you know, get drunk and find some random person to go home with and, you know, do whatever. So it was just like, man. I <laughs> right. And so, but it's uh, eventually that doesn't really get you where you want to go. But I would imagine it makes sense. Like the alcohol probably took away a lot of the fear, a lot of the shame, a lot of the anxiety and just allowed you, I guess, in a way not to be yourself, but to be more open, I guess, in a way, yeah. but not in a healthy way. I don't know if that right. makes sense. Not in a healthy way, not in a healthy way, but that's the only way that I knew. And so, um, like I yeah. said, I, yeah, I continued to live that out. It started to progress as I got into college, you know, continue going out to clubs and drinking more and more. And the progression of my alcoholism continued until into my adult years. And I finally found myself with a job that I, I as quote unquote, a kid, I always wanted to have a job where I could travel and have the company pay for it. And, you know, that's that's one of the things I wanted to right. do. And I found this job with the insurance company. So I traveled all over the country. And part of the culture that we had was when we traveled, we were in places we didn't know about. So after work, we'd hang out in the bars at the hotel or go out to a club or something and we would drink. It became a part of what we did. And so that masked a lot of my drinking and uh, alcoholism. And so that got progressively and progressively worse until 2007 when I got my first DUI. And one of the things that I realized at that point, I'm like, man, I've got this dream job that I wanted. I'm making great money. That's not an issue. You know, I get to hang out. I get to, you know, just like, like life would seem to be great, but this is one of the most miserable times. And that did not make sense to me. Right. So here you are, you have kind of everything you want. You have the job you want. You got, you're, you're making the money you want yet you're miserable and you're you're realizing your drinking is maybe a problem especially when you start yeah. to get a, a dui and you start to say whoa wait a minute right this isn't right. Uh, yeah. something's not right yeah. here it was kind of a wake-up call but i didn't wake up all i thought to myself was i think i'm drinking a little bit too much i need to probably cut back on that and I'm going to do something a little bit safer and start smoking weed because before then I really wasn't involved. I was I was a drinker. Right. And so my decision at that point with the DUI was, OK, I think I'm going to lay off the alcohol a little bit. And I think I'll just do something safer and start smoking marijuana because, you know, in my head, I didn't think people got in too much trouble with doing that. And so that was my. But you got to keep yourself uh, 
numbed out, I guess, in some kind of way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, the option was it not to numb myself out. I was just going to change how I was going to do it. And so, yeah, yeah. But the but the same thing happened. I was, you know, smoking constantly all day, every day, going to work after work. And but I didn't see it to myself that was a problem. It just was trading one thing for another. So that was the, I guess, transition of the progression of my using. And then later, smoking marijuana became smoking other things. And so that really uh, is where I started to really go downhill very quickly because. Wow. So it even got got worse. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. You yeah. You would think I was as far, but. It got worse and it became to where I was actually an IV drug user. And so I found myself in that space. And that's uh, that's never a good space to be in <laughs> for anybody. No, so, no, not at all. Yeah. So those are some very dark so days. So here you know. are managing this great, yeah, I would imagine, dark days. I mean, here you are. You've got this job. You get your DUI. It starts going worse and worse and worse. Are you still holding this job or, or well, did you, the D- what happened? Well, the DUI caused me to, I quit that job because I just, I didn't know how to cope with things mm-hmm. and I wasn't going to face yeah. navigating how to deal with that. So my out was, uh, okay, I'll just resign. You know, I was like, I'll resign before you guys fire me. Don't, don't worry about it. And so I just left and that's, that's. My coping abilities were just not there, and that's how I managed through dealing with things, which, again, weren't healthy at all. And so, again, I just, I was kind of all over the place. And from there, I continued to spiral, still finding jobs that I would get into these situations with and end up leaving. So I was jumping from one place to the other, moving from one place to the other. And so, yeah, eventually I found myself back in St. Louis. And at that point, when things got really dark around 2013, that's when I found myself in treatment. Now, I wasn't in recovery at that point Mm -hmm. because at that point, my main reason for getting into treatment was because I made this big fiasco at work at the company I was working for. And we had, it was actually short-term disability, but we call it stress leave is what we used to call it. And so I was uh, right. I was stressed out, you know, as I was nodding off at work in a meeting and, uh, you know, made this big uh, dramatical scene. And, you know, I was like, well, I'm going to HR because I just can't do this anymore. And I was acting like I had a problem. And so, of course, they just said, well, just fill the paperwork out and do what you need to do and just let us know when you're ready. And I'm thinking, man, I won. Like, I'm going to I'm going to get paid my short term disability and I'm going to sit at home, continue to use. And I've I've arrived. I've, I've made it. And so I finagled my way into treatment. I ended up in outpatient. Had I been honest on those assessments, mm-hmm. I probably should have been inpatient. <laughs> and I'm not been, right. If but, I had been but, truthful. But, been so truthful. You, in a way, <laughs> if you would have been totally honest, but it sounds like in a way, part of you knew you needed treatment and a part of you didn't want to go to treatment. It sounds like, like you kind of said you finagled your way into treatment, but not fully, yeah. but I guess enough. You needed help, right? You knew well, you needed help. Well, the only help at that point that I 
thought I needed and that I wanted was the doctor's note. <laughs> so I can get short-term uh, okay. disability. That was my single purpose. That was my single focus at that point. And I say that a lot of times because when I go to speak at treatment centers or I'm talking with people who are in treatment, I'm like, look, I get it. You're talking to somebody who ended up in treatment and had no intentions of being there, didn't want to be there, and was not about to engage in anything because I didn't feel like I belonged there. And so I say that because it's like, I get it. Just because you're here doesn't mean you're ready to be here, you know? And I'm just, I tell them. Right, right. So you didn't, you were, you're like, this is just a way for me to, to, to tune out, to continue to use and get paid. And I don't really need this treatment. I'll, I'll fake my way through it. Yes. It was a means to the end. It was a means to an end. And I said it. Right. Okay. Yeah. I said in that um, outpatient treatment program, I was laughing at the other people when they came in crying after a weekend and relapsed. And, you know, I'm like, man, these people got some problems. Something's wrong with them. You know, I was I was not <laughs> them. I was there. But yeah. me and them were not the same. And that's that's what was in my head. Wow. So, yeah, for probably three weeks, maybe four weeks. That's that was my mindset. And that did not change until I I told myself, okay, I need to start getting with the program before they kick me out of here. Because if they kick me out, then I'm definitely not going to get the doctor's note and my short-term disability is going to end. And that will be a problem. (laughs) That motivated you to like, yeah. That was my motivation. I said, okay, let me, all right, now I'm going to quit playing. I'm going to go ahead and and kick in, you know, pass the urine screen. Because I had not passed not one urine screen up until that point. I wasn't even trying. But that first week wow. when I tried, I did, you know, because some stuff happened in life, like some stuff went wrong and I, I used, you know, and so I didn't do it the first week. And so the second week I said, OK, I'm going to really do it this time. And I really tried and I still couldn't. And then I was like, OK, no, wait a minute. And I'm going to quit playing because I know that they are about done with me by now. And so by that third week, I recognized I still couldn't do it. And when I tried with all my might. And until that point, after like that third week, I got home and I was like, something's wrong with me. <laughs> I was like, you mean to tell me I cannot go seven straight days without using or drinking or something? And I was like, what is wrong with me? <laughs> wow. So it started to flip on you somehow yeah. in here as you started to sit in this in this community of recovery. Something started to change. And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe I'm not so different from these other people in here. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) It wasn't until I tried to stop. And that's what I tell people, like, until you put the effort forth to actually try to do it and recognize that you cannot, like, that's the only thing that I know that will click in your head to say something is wrong. As long as you're doing it for other people right. or you're doing it to get the doctors know for short-term disability or you're doing it to get mom off your back or whatever, it, it's not really, to me, going to avail. It's not until you for yourself recognize, okay, I'm trying to stop. And no matter what I do, I cannot. Something's wrong, you know. And, right. and that was the single right. thing that brought, <laughs> I always say, it turned the light bulb on, but the problem was the light bulb was way over there on that side of the room. And that's the only thing that made me recognize how in the dark I was. 
is when the light bulb came wow. on, it was nowhere near me. <laughs> it was way, way over there. And I was like, how did I get over here? <laughs> it was such so, a dark. How did you start to, when you started to recognize that and you're like, holy, you know, holy yeah. crap. Yeah. I I really think I do have a problem. What started to shift in you and like what started to change? So at that point, I, I remember like after that, that weekend experience, and I was like, one thing about it that was good for me, like I'm already in a program. So <laughs> I'm like, well, at least right, I'm a step right. ahead because at least I'm where I need <laughs> to be. I didn't at that point have to try to get in or try, you know, I was already where yeah. I needed to be. I just wasn't present. And so I think probably after that weekend, I'm sure everybody in that class must have been like, who is this person? Because it's like one thing I knew about it, like I said, I was a scholastic person. So I was like, I know I'm not dumb. Like, I know I can learn. And if I'm in this classroom setting where they are teaching us about this stuff, I think that Monday I might have came in with a paper and was like, okay, now what is that? Now, how do you do that? Explain that again. And, you know, I was like, I need to get this. I got to get this. And they must have been like, well, welcome to class. <laughs> I was hating it all. But I'm sure about that. Like, who is this they person? Were, yeah. They had to be like, who is that? Well, thanks for showing up. Because I knew, I was like, I had no idea about recovery. I had no idea about, you know, substance use, alcoholism. Like, it, it did not dawn on me about any of that. And so I was clueless. And so I knew the only way that I could try to gain momentum in trying to work with this was to learn and to understand. And so, yeah, I know I came alive. I know I came alive in that class. So then you you switched. You started to desire to get clean. And you started, there's that switch was flipped. Yes. Yes, because I didn't know how. I I didn't know. I didn't have a clue about it. And so I knew that I had to learn. I was like, this is something that's foreign to me. Um, Even though I was a part of it, it in my head, I just, I was just living life. And and to me, I guess, I thought everybody's life was like that. It it didn't dawn on me that that was not normal. You know, it was my normal, but it was not. And that didn't have to be the case. Yeah. Yeah. Did you realize like how, you know, as you start to kind of get sober, did you realize how dark your life was, if that makes sense? Like how much pain you were in, in a way, like that, that maybe the drugs were covering up? I did. I did start to recognize, you know, some of the things that I guess that I was doing in my way of coping. So one of the decisions that I made, which were important, there were two, I felt really important decisions I made as a part of the recovery process. Number one, when I was in class, there were a lot of some other guys that were in class. They were in these sober living houses and I would hear them talking about the different stories of what was going on and who did what and all this. And, and I again, I had no idea about any of those things. And so I'm listening to them. And when I decided that I was going to do this and try to do this to the best of my abilities, I recognized I had my own apartment. I still had a job. And so all of those things were still in place for me. But I knew that I couldn't stay in that same apartment, that all of this 
catastrophe stuff had gone on with. Right. And so I thought to myself, well, you know what? These guys seem to be doing well and they're in the sober living environment and it seems very supportive. And I want that. Like whatever anybody was doing that looked successful, I wanted what they had. And so I was willing to do what they were doing. And so at that point, I think they were talking about they had a couple of bed openings. And so it was me. It was There was another guy that was in class. He was going to go to view the house to look at moving in. And I invited myself and I was like, well, if you're going, I'm going too. <laughs> like, you're not going to leave me out. <laughs> of course, you know, I well, want this. Yes. And so, and yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I was still all over the place and not, you know, trusting and all that. And I'm thinking like, oh, they're going to try to, you know, leave me out of this. So I said, and I'm going to drive. So you're going to ride in my car so I can make sure you don't leave me. <laughs> so, so I went over there. You're like, yeah, I'm getting this. You're not stopping oh, I me. I know. Yes. Wow. I was like, there's, I, at that point, nothing was going to stop me. And so right after class, we went over to the sober living house and I, I went in there and it was like, it was in the city of St. Louis and they had these big, beautiful old houses. It was basically like a mansion. And so I'm like, look in this big old foyer. And I'm like, these guys are living in here like this. <laughs> and, uh, and the house was beautiful. It was a beautiful house, like a three-story house, you know, a bathroom on each floor. It was, uh-huh. it was amazing. And so I decided, I said, yep. I said, I'm taking one of these beds. There were two beds left. The one guy took one bed and I took the other bed. And I still had three months left on my apartment lease. But I knew that I needed that. And wow. so at that point, yes, I finagled and managed to get my three months paid off at my apartment and pay my rent at the sober living because I recognized, like, if I didn't take that bed, I didn't know when another bed would you open. You needed this. I wanted it very bad. Wow, so, that's a that's such a great that's such a great story to like show like yeah. when you're yeah. driven to recovery, yeah. the steps you'll mm-hmm. you'll, take you'll take to yeah. to get sober to put yeah. yourself in a position to be successful. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. love that story because that like really shows like that's what you got to do you yes. you sometimes you just got to yeah. put everything out there i mean that that's a great yeah. i i love yeah. i love that and, story well i was going to say when i'm working with people and like you're struggling with these things i use it i'm like no i'm sorry you don't you don't get to fool me and trick me what we can and can't do because we can become superheroes when it comes time to do whatever we trying to do and so we have to be that same motivated person in recovery and so i know it yeah. can be done so yeah and what do you think i'm just wondering as you're making this change right you came into this treatment program kind of you know i guess kind of arrogant and and uh you know kind of like i'm just getting my i'm just getting the note and and did the staff you know all the treatment providers and the counselors did they see a change in you Oh yes! Oh my goodness! They yes, say, one of my they're great, like, what's going on with this? Oh, this guy. Look, one of my really, really great mentors. I mean, this guy. He he was there seeing me at my worst, and he has, as a matter of fact, he's been a part of my life since then, since 2013. As a matter of fact, we have been so close. When he got married, he asked me to officiate him, him and his wife's wedding, which I was like. Wow. Yeah, I'm like, there's no way I can say no. And that's how much of an honor it was. And that's how much he meant to me in those times. And so he he taught that class. And at that time when he worked there, 
he would always tell me, he's like, oh, yeah, I love when Cordy was in class because I could just sit back and just let him. (laughs) 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 Yeah, he was like, oh, he could just about teach the class now. And he would. He just, you know, sit there and if somebody was struggling with something, you know, I'd jump in. I'd be like, well, you know, I could explain it because it was almost like I could translate in a sense like if somebody wasn't getting something and i understood the concept i was able to kind of break it down in a sense that made sense and so yeah i started doing that like all the time and so yeah he would always say he said oh yeah i loved when when i would teach classes i just let you go <laughs> you know that's so, so eventually that's, that's that so... segued me into working into the treatment that's that's great. So one of the things that we talked about at the beginning before we were recording was also that for you, medication has been a big part of your treatment protocol. And so I wanted to talk about that because that can be really, really helpful. And we talked about naltrexone was was the drug that you were using to, to help you cope with like cravings and and stuff like that can you talk about that experience too because i think that's important for a lot of people out there to hear that yes absolutely that was probably the another big moment for me in my recovery that was pivotal in me being successful one was going and moving into that sober living environment the second was participating in that medicated assisted treatment program. So I had, again, no idea about what it was, but fortunately, the treatment center that I was at was a very big advocate. And back in that time, now Trixone or Vivitrol was still fairly new. Maybe it had been on the market maybe about three years at that point, I guess. And so it was still pretty new. And so the person that ran that facility was a very big advocate. And when that person would talk about it and explain it, I was like, that's what I need. And so I was willing to try it. And so I did. And it was very, I believe, very, very helpful Um, for me. I explained it, how it worked for me was that it kind of muted the cravings. And so I explained it like if someone's watching TV and you got the picture and then you got the sound on, it's very distracting, right? And and then that pulls your attention and those are like the cravings. And so the Vivitrol was kind of like the mute button on the TV. It cut the sound. Right, right. You know, the picture may still be there. It takes some of that, you know, distraction away and allows me to focus a lot more on learning, on my skill building, coping, and doing what it is that I need to do. And so that was, for me, very pivotal in helping to allow me that advantage to gain some uh, traction in my sobriety. And I needed that. I needed that because I didn't have anything else when it came to building those coping skills. So it allowed you by kind of like muting the the picture, like your analogy, like you said, like turning off the sound or muting the color or whatever Mm -hmm. of the picture. It doesn't it doesn't have that strong of call for you. So that gave you the time to build some more of these recovery skills you needed to cope Yes. Yes. So it was very helpful. Um, Like I said, I guess I can only imagine what that would be like for me had I not participated in that. Like it was like I struggled enough, you know, even with the medication. So without it, oh, my goodness, like I, I can't even imagine. And so it took a lot for me 
to get to where I needed to be in addressing those inner things, like you mentioned earlier, not only just coping, but there was interpersonal dynamics that I needed to reconcile for myself. Yes, trauma, which I probably did not even recognize the trauma that I carried with me until I was in my 30s. It it did not even. I mean, I I would imagine, you know, just. Yeah, the, being a you know a gay black man, the trauma that just comes from that from our culture and our from from our society, that yeah. in and of itself is huge. Mm-hmm. So I I had a lot of these interpersonal things that I had to reconcile in order for me to get uh, where I needed to be, just in being able to have some uh, right self efficacy for myself. And uh, to be able to build a, a life in on a continuum that allowed me to manage the just the regular life stress, you know, yeah, just regular everyday life stress for me to even be able to deal with that. I needed to reconcile all those things within me in order for me to be able to do that. And so now life is. I could never have imagined before now that life could be this wonderful without substances. Like I, it never dawned on me that life could be so good without using. That's so amazing to be able to say that, to like be able to get to that other side and go, wow, man, it's really good over here. It's good on the other side. But it, like you said, it takes work. I I feel like you gotta maybe make that switch a little bit like this is the most important thing to me and then get all pull all your resources and take them and use them yeah absolutely yes and so i always try to explain when i'm working with other people if i feel that if i cannot identify what i do for myself daily to keep myself sober then i'm going to have a problem because i have to measure that out almost like a recipe you know, I do this, yeah. I do this, I do this, I do this. And when I know those things, it allows me to say, hey, I, have I been slacking in this area? Maybe that explains why my attitude is not so great. Maybe because I haven't been doing this, my gratefulness has been deteriorating, you know. And so I'm able to keep that like a, a, a scale to balance and measure where I'm at just in my life and in my daily activities. And I can like I can tell, it's almost like I'm able to self-regulate when things are off. You know, if my if focus is off, have I been getting enough sleep and enough rest? You know, have I been having self-care? And so I'm able to check in with myself in those many different ways and, and know if things are off and make the proper adjustments. Yeah. And now you're also a licensed alcohol and drug abuse counselor as well. Tell, tell me about that part of the journey and giving back and and wanting to help others. Sure. I'm on I'm on the track to become a licensed alcohol okay. and drug abuse counselor. Okay. And in the state of Tennessee, I have submitted my application. And uh oh, congratulations. That's awesome. Well, thank you. So I'm I'm waiting. In Tennessee, once we submit the application and the board reviews it, then they give us an okay to take the exam. So that's where I'm at with that process. In addition to that, I am also in school working on my second master's. Uh, my first master's is in business administration. And then my second master's I'm going to complete next year in May will be clinical mental health counseling. So that should allow me to become wow. a licensed professional counselor uh, slash mental health service provider. So I should also be able to get that license 
So many things are going well. I also was awarded a fellowship through the uh, NBCC National Board uh, for Certified Counselors. They have a minority fellowship program. So I was one of the 40 recipients across the whole country to get the uh, addictions counseling uh, fellowship. So I am just stoked about that. We went to Atlanta. What a um, journey. Yeah. That is amazing. And funny thing about this is, let me tell you how full circle things come in my life. Back in 2007 in Colorado, when I was traveling, that's when I got my DUI. We go to a conference next year in Colorado as a part of this fellowship. And so uh, I'm just like, all right, well, <laughs> I'm going to experience Colorado. Here we go. This time, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, oh, you know, that's amazing. Like, yes, it's just like so many things are just coming full circle for me. And uh, I'm just so excited about life. So, so I've got all those things kind of going on. And so things are great. I get to work with others. I still participate in the uh, 12-step recovery community and I sponsor people. Um, I think I've got three people I work with now. So I, I stay busy. I stay oh, that's motivated. Awesome. I stay focused. And that, that keeps me sober. It keeps me sober. Like, like who has time and, for the rest? And it shows that life is good <laughs> on the other side. Yeah. Life is good on the other side. Yeah. Wow. Definitely. Courtney, thank you so much. Okay. So we're kind of running on our time here. I always like to ask one question at, at the end. Maybe someone out there is like you and, you know, they just want the doctor's note and you could tell them one thing. <laughs> what would you say to them? Never give up trying. That's one of the things that I look at as I look back. No matter how many times I had slips, mess ups, relapses, you know, hiccups in, in the sober living, hiccups in my personal recovery or whatever. I never stopped trying. I think because I didn't give up and because I knew no matter how many times I messed up, I wanted it. And that's what kept me going. And so I would just tell somebody just just never give up. It doesn't matter how bad it looks, no matter how much you have to try to take care of in your life. Just always keep on trying. Never stop. Never, never stop. Oh, awesome. Thank you, Courtney, so much for coming on. How can people find you if they if they want to reach out to you? Sure, they can reach out. I have my uh, social media. I don't do it a whole lot, but I'm trying to get better with that. I have my uh, Instagram, which that has not only my personal page, but I also have an art page, too, where I do my personal artwork. Um, so that one is life, oh, awesome. L-I-F-E-P-C underscore art, A-R-T. And that is my art page. And then my personal page on Instagram is firstclass1906, F-I-R-S-T-C-L-A-S-S-1906. And the same thing on Facebook. My tags on there are the same, life, PC underscore art and then my name is courtney c-o-u-r-t-n-e-y Collier c-o-l-l-i-e-r awesome and i will put all those links in the show notes as well so everybody can uh, go there at the addictedmind.com courtney thank you so much for coming on and, and just sharing your your spirit your wisdom with the addicted mind audience i just appreciate it so much thank you so much for having me i'm, I'm glad to be here thank you 
All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. So check that out. If you got a lot out of this episode, share it with a friend. And you can also join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful day. And I will talk to you on the next episode. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.